Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and Federation citizens use the metric system so they don't know what a quarter pounder is. They also don't know what a quarter is because they don't have money. My guest on the show today is Allison Pitt. Allison is an audio producer, editor, and a voiceover artist. She's also the host of Daily Star Trek News on the Roddenberry Podcast Network, bringing you Star Trek news in podcast form every weekday. Allison, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's my pleasure. It's great to finally have you here. Permission to come aboard granted. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about The Royale, the 12th episode of the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Genre fiction has historically gotten a bad rap when compared with its cooler, more cultured sibling, literary fiction. After all, literature has The Great Gatsby and Don Quixote and Pride and Prejudice, while genre is stuck with Goldfinger and The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and Twilight. But as fiction has evolved and the novel has hatched into radio, film, television, and numerous other media, genre fiction has risen to take its place alongside literary fiction as a respected peer, being equally insightful and sophisticated while remaining committed to imagination and inclusivity. And yes, that includes even you, Teen Wolf. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Allison, it's great to have you here. And I always ask first-time guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Uh, That's a good question. I don't actually know. It's just sort of always been around. Probably my earliest memories of Star Trek are when I was eh, early teen. Uh, I used to just watch it like twice a day because it was on in the early afternoon and then it was on again in the in like in the evening, like after dinner time. Yeah. And they used to do this thing. So the early one would play one episode and then after dinner, they'd play the next episode. And then the next day, the early one would be the the later one from the day before. Yeah, right, right. And then they would play the next one. And I used to watch both of those. So I'd watch the same episode twice. I was just obsessed. I don't know uh, that I specifically remember. Uh, my parents have told me that I that they used to watch um, the original series like when I was littler, like at dinner. Okay. And and to this still sometimes we'll watch an episode of the original series that I don't really remember, but then I'll go, wait, that looks familiar. It's weird. So yeah, probably the uh, watching it twice a day is probably the uh, earliest. And I don't know why it just caught me. I, I can't, I can't describe any particular reason why i wonder if the original series and i guess definitely tng as well if they had been like remember how like cartoon or not cartoon comic book films when they first came out like the 90s and the 2000s they Mm -hmm. all had to be like cool like washed out aesthetic black leather costumes and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. i wonder if star if star trek had looked like that and not the kind of four color day glow fantasy that it presented i wonder if I would have been attracted to it in the same way, you know, like if it if that sort of draws in the kiddies and then the deeper philosophical explorations of humanity is like what keeps adults around for it. But I've noticed that as well. That's a really interesting question, actually. I wish that I could remember my mentality when I was a kid, because probably I can imagine as a child that I would have been attracted by the colors. And of course you don't get the deeper meaning. You don't get the nuance yeah, yeah. about like <laughs> Kodos, the executioner and stuff like, you, know, you don't get that nuance, but of course that's appealing to the grownups. Yeah. Whereas the kid, like, like many Disney movies um, <laughs> where you have this sort of two layered thing going on with the spectacle versus the actual content. So I wonder. Yeah. 
But I'm not sure anybody remembers when they were that young, like what they were actually thinking, except I'm hungry and why won't mom go let me play? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, yeah, maybe if Earth Final Conflict, it would have done better if everybody was wearing a single color T-shirt or something like that on it. Yeah, maybe, (laughs) maybe. Uh, And you lived in the UK for a long time. Is that right? I, I did. Yeah. So I lived in the UK for about 15 years. I didn't grow up there. I moved there as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just recently, I say recently, it was like three years ago now, uh, end of 2016, I moved back here to the States. I actually moved over there just after, uh, just after 9-11. Okay. So uh, th- I have this really weird dissonance in my brain because I spent a long time remembering America before 9-11. Yeah. This is a common thing that I'm, that I understand happens to expatriates of any country, uh, immigrants, emigrants, that, um, you remember the, you remember how your country was before you left. Yeah. And you end up almost being more fundamentalist because like have this vision of purity of what your country used to be like. And then when you actually find out what it's like, it's very different. It was a really big cultural shift, a cultural adjustment when I moved back here, even though I'm American and I grew up here, but so much has changed between 2001 and 2016 yeah. that it was, it was a big adjustment. That's fascinating. You got the, yeah, the like pre 9-11 American experience. Then you got mm-hmm. to experience the post 9-11 uh, European perception of Americans for a while, and then you got to come right back here uh, yeah. in, for the new millennial experience <laughs> of being an American. Yeah, like right in at the deep end. Yeah, nice. <laughs> in 2016. Well, well picked. Yeah, it was a, an interesting adjustment. Yeah. I always I always ask <laughs> British nationals that come on the show about Star Trek mm. in the UK, but now I can ask somebody who's really had the best of both worlds. Like, what's what's Trek fandom like <laughs> in the UK? Pun intended. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. What's Trek fandom <laughs> like in the UK in comparison to the US? Um, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that. Although, because so there, my experience of Trek fandom was different. Mm. Um, but that might just be because of uh, the conventions that I went to. So, um, I really wasn't a participant in the Trek fandom before about 2014. Mm in the UK. So it's, um, you know, I wasn't going to conventions. I, I wasn't involved in any fan clubs or anything. I got into it like again, because of Star Trek online. And b- then the people that I was interacting with in Star Trek online were a mix. They're from all over the world. Sure. So, and then I went to my very first, believe it or not, Star Trek convention in 2014, in 2014. And, um, it's different, uh, destination Star Trek, is like so the the two really like big worldwide conventions really are Star Trek Las Vegas and Destination Star Trek. Right. And Destination Star Trek is totally different because it's like the tickets are super cheap uh but everything's all a cart. So if you want to go to a panel or a photo shoot or anything you have to pay extra on top of that. Right. So it's a it's a very different experience from say STLV where it's all inclusive so you go and then you can basically go to any of the panels that you want. Right. Um so I it Yes, it seemed different, but I don't know whether that's just because a different company did the different conventions or not. I don't know. <laughs> well, say. well, I guess I could switch the focus of my question then. Mm. And that's, you know, being involved in Star Trek online. That's if for yeah. somebody who is not necessarily eating, breathing, thinking about Star Trek all the time. That's a dive into the deep end of Star Trek canon because yeah. so much of the content there is drawn from so many parts and shows uh, in the Star Trek franchise. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I have, I have the massive high, high regard for the writers um, and the producers at Star Trek Online. They they did, you know, before Discovery came on the scene, they they were Star Trek yeah. and they did a fantastic job of, of furthering that story. And um, it, they just I can't speak highly enough of that team. Um, yeah, I actually I deliberately didn't join Star Trek Online when it came out. I'd heard of it. I think it started in 2010, I think. Yeah, because this is their 10th anniversary this year. Um, I deliberately did not download that game uh, because I knew that I would love it. And (laughs) I can tell you right now, like if you if you haven't played it before and you decide to download it and go in, what will get you is that you will land on Earth space dock and your mind will just melt (laughs) because... (laughs) <laughs> because you come you come off the transporter in Earth space dock and it's the sounds of like Earth space dock. I mean, it's, yeah. it sounds like you're on like put on big old headphones and it's just this immersive sound and you are in Star Trek and then you can walk around and everyone's in uniform. And whoa. <laughs> then you start to get into the like the end game people that have designed really strange aliens and stuff right. <laughs> gone really customized and stuff. And then you realize, yeah, OK, it's still an MMO. Yeah, right. <laughs> but <laughs> that first like that first like shock to the system of, oh, my God, I'm in Star Trek is kind of like. I still love it. I, I I don't play it as much anymore because I'm quite busy most of the time. Yeah. But when I do dive in there, it's the the sounds, the the visuals on it just it blow me away. That's that's cool. How long have you been doing daily Star Trek news now? Uh, what day is today? Um, uh, <laughs> almost exactly a year. Okay. Yeah, which is why I was like, what day is it? Okay. So technically, technically, the first episode I ever recorded was on the 10th of April of last year. That episode will never see the light of day. Okay. Um, sure, sure. Beyond my computer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure as somebody who does podcasts, you understand. Um, the first one that I actually published was on the 23rd of April. So it hasn't quite been a full year, yeah. but it's been uh, just about. That would be a good uh, Patreon extra, maybe for uh, the highest tier. It's like you can hear my my temp shows. Uh, yeah, that'd be and interesting. Then, we'll see. <laughs> and then stop being a patron and quit. <laughs> well, the, so what's interesting is sort of the, my initial concept was was actually that it was going to be uh, much more off the cuff and improvised. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first several shows that I did, I took headlines and I improvised them knowing that I would, you know, cut it and produce it into a, you know, into a show. Yeah. I ended up not going down that route, first of all, because of like my former colleagues at Priority One will tell you I'm terrible at improvising. Okay, well, that too. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's why my whole sh- show is scripted. Um, but also part of it was testing the concept of, you know, how much, con- like how much exposure can I get um, with uh, one set of content? So for me, it works much better to script it because that script becomes my blog post, it becomes my social media post, sure. it becomes my newsletter. Yeah. So it's, um, I get a lot more value out of it, taking the extra time to script it ahead of time. So yeah, so that's mostly why those shows will never go out because they're a little, I mean, well, I don't know, they might be interesting, they are edited, they're just sort of a little bit more off the cuff than um, than what it currently is. Sure. Where'd the idea for the show come from? Why did you get the bug to deliver Star Trek news? Uh, well, I'm I'm sort of like in like in my real life, I'm sort of a process person. I'm fascinated by process and process management and how to make things more efficient. And, um, you know, I am interested in uh, SEO and, you know, all, all sorts of things. And and really, it was sort of um, I saw 
a niche in the uh, sort of Star Trek podcast field that wasn't currently being filled, which was basically just hardcore news in a short format. Sure. Um, and so I saw a space there and I fit, thought of a way to do it and I just really wanted to do it. And, um, and so I did it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's a, there's no better way to explain it. So, yeah. Well, one of the things I like about daily Star Trek news is, uh, is your impartiality about news. Like you just deliver it and there isn't a lot of commenting on it. And that's something yeah. that you see a lot of the information you get on the internet these days, especially about Star Trek is all tinged with commentary, which is fine. It's people's rights as creators, but just getting to hear like, oh, okay, this is a story or this is what's going on with this show or something. Certainly post 2017 with the advent of discovery and CBS Trek, I'd imagine that there's a lot more news to deliver just for myself as a yeah, part-time news person. <laughs> On this program, you know, I've experienced that. Uh, but as somebody who's reporting Trek news every day, do you ever find yourself in a position where you're like, what am I going to talk about today? Uh, th there was a period of time last summer when that was the case. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> when I was like, wow, nothing's happening. Down. <laughs> um, but uh, no, not really since then. But then, you know, I I've sort of adapted what I include as stories and... Um, what the threshold is for news, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I thank you for saying that about impartiality. I try to, that's one of the things that I try to do is be impartial, um, but fair. And I also try to not put spoilers in because there are some people who don't or can't watch the modern Star Trek. So right. I try to keep that out of it too. Yeah. My idea is that, you know, anybody could listen to the show and feel like they're keeping up to date on what's going on in the fandom and also what's going on the production side. Yeah. So honestly, we've got 53 years of history at this point with the oh, Star yeah. Trek franchise. Yeah. And, um, when, what I because what I cover covers not only what's currently going on with you know production or um, the current cast of Picard and Discovery doing you know talking about their shows. Yeah. I also cover what's happening in the fandom. So we have, like I said, fifty three years of of actors and actresses who are having lives and people want to keep up with what they're doing, what their new projects are, what conventions they're going to. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, one of the things I try to do is like elevate other, other fans voices. So when I hear about people who have done something remarkable with their fandom, whether it's, you know, uh, music or they're organizing events or they have, you know, uh, just done something great for other people. I try to highlight that in my show. Cause I think that other Star Trek fans want to know about it. They want to feel good about their fandom. So over time I've sort of brought all of those different elements in and honestly my backlog of things that I want to tell people about, but I haven't got time to write is, <laughs> is, 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 is mammoth. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I've swung the other way at this point. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, well, why did you choose this specific episode, the Royale to discuss today? Uh, because it's really fun. <laughs> it is. I, I mean, <laughs> Like I'm, I am definitely one of those people. Like there are there are episodes of Star Trek that I can appreciate that are great, you know, that are you know really important and influential. Um, I what I love most about Star Trek is that it's fun. I like all the stupid episodes. I like the ones that are a little bit goofy. I love it when they introduce humor alongside drama. Yeah, and um, 
the Royale is like this weird episode. I mean, it's like a, it's a, I don't know what genre. It's like this, the, the noir mystery, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, it's so like cheesy though. Sci-fi. It's almost, yeah, right. But it's, it's so, it's so cheesy. It's almost just like pulp, it's pulp basically. It's just mm-hmm. like what you think of as a pulp novel. Yeah. And I, that, that kind of story, I mean, and like, oh, I'm going to be one of these people, but like, I, I find those are really, really missing from modern Star Trek. I miss them so much. I miss that whole, like, cause you get those episodes when you have a series, yeah. like you're trying to produce 26 episodes. Um, oh yeah. You got to do know. everything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just have to, some, some of the scripts are not that strong, a little <laughs> bit like daily Star Trek news, but the, you know, it's the, it's the whole, right yeah. it's it's the the whole picture and um and so the royale is a perfect example of like what the heck i mean there's nothing they don't nothing consequential happens they don't no one learns anything yeah. it's weird because we've been talking about this on the show recently which is that trek doesn't go quote unquote funny a lot like it's often humorous in its dialogue and characters but it's mainly an adventure show it's social commentary and it doesn't often go into broad comedy Uh, and when it does I think that often the lack of experience in doing that shows because it's not it's not always out and out hilarious like this this episode is definitely funny but there's other times where I know like menage a trois I know I'm or not trois it's Troy Uh, I'm supposed to be laughing but it's like okay it's funny this is funny everybody yeah I agree with you on that I think the best the, the best of Star Trek is when they they take a dramatic situation and they can inject humor like uh, almost everything Worf says I mean he's not meant to be a comedy <laughs> character <laughs> they milk him for comedy though yeah and yet it's just that that the type of personality in the situations that they put him in it ends up being humorous and I think having that that levity makes it relatable because oh, yeah, um yeah. you know it's but as humans even when like even when you're so depressed if you put on your favorite comedy show, you'll laugh, yeah, you know, yeah. or if something absurd happens, it'll tickle your fancy. It might not make you not depressed, but we all have that capacity. And I, and so I think having a little bit of humor in there, just it, it for me makes it more realistic. I'm not sure that Star Trek in their writer's room ever had like a comedy guy or girl. Like when I think about something like, uh, the X-Files, which is nominally mm-hmm. very serious or at least very spooky, but then they'd have <laughs> these really like funny, like sort of metatextual episodes that are kind of poking holes in the in the premise of the series. And a lot of them yeah. were by like Darren Morgan, which was their like, you know, genius wonderkin writer who loved to write these like goofy, funny scripts. And I can't I mean, right. maybe like Brian Fuller, I think, put a lot of comedy into Voyager, I think when he could. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, nobody else is really coming to mind is like, oh, that's, we're going to get a funny script out of this guy. Yeah. Well, they, I think they've, um, they tried to do a little bit in discovery, although I think they leaned on, um, Mary Wiseman a little bit too much in mm-hmm. season two of mm-hmm. discovery for that. Um, but it, I don't know. It doesn't, that didn't quite work, but then that material is much, much heavier. And because of this, that, um, serialized format, you, there's not a lot, there's not a lot of room for, um, side quests. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, Those... <laughs> they don't. They're not going off to the Royale. <laughs> you know, they don't have discovery. time. Although I'd love to see that, though, for sure. 
This uh, <laughs> this episode holds a special place for me. I was young but not a baby when TNG was on, and we had just gotten a VCR. And so, like a lot of kids who grew up in that era, you know, you have a limited number of VHS tapes that were either mm-hmm. movies your parents had bought or things that you had yep. taped off a of TV, assuming you knew how to do that. And I bugged my parents to get me a pack of VHS tapes so I could record things off of TV. And one of the things I recorded must have been this episode because I remember watching it uh, over and over again when I was a kid. Yeah, which is maybe not. I, I wish I'd got a really, a really good episode. Uh, I don't think I, I. I watched Best of Both Worlds one and two, but I think I forgot to record those. So it was just the Royale oh. and uh, Skin of Evil for me. Right. Oh, that's a that's a that's another classic one. Like classic scary monster episode. That's true. That was very Skin of Evil is very TOS to me. Oh yeah, um, yeah. This is this is a very TOS too, and we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this gets weirdly inve- this episode gets weirdly invested in its side characters too, like um, the bellhop and Texas and and Vanessa. And I had no yeah. real awareness at that age of how predatory Texas is in the episode. Oh yeah, he does so not like play well today. It, yeah. <laughs> And what, what I find, because I was watching it, you're you're absolutely right. It does not play well. And one of the reasons, I mean, I remember there, there's a scene, and I can't remember exactly which scene it is, but Data is like watching them, trying to figure out what's going on. Because he asks Tex, is it Tex or Tex? I can't remember. Texas, he asks yeah, him Texas. to take him to see his car because he's trying to figure out how they can get out of the Royale. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not going to take you to see my car. And Data's then watching him with this woman. And I would like to think that by the time we get to the 24th century data would be like okay that's gross can you not do that right yeah yeah i mean i guess it's like a non-interference they're trying I to program to respect on, other but cultures like, but yeah there is a baseline that we can operate off of yeah yeah that was a little <laughs> ah. yeah i just thought oh he's a funny guy he's gonna teach data how to gamble huh? that's fun yeah yeah well, we're talking the TNG episode, The Royale. It was the 12th episode of the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation. It first aired on March 27th of 1989. It was written by Keith Mills, which is the writing pseudonym for TNG staff writer and creative consultant Tracy Torme. We'll get into why he used a pseudonym on the episode in just a little bit. Torme got his start writing for Saturday Night Live in the early 80s and worked on the first and second seasons of The Next Generation, where he served as an executive story editor on season one and a creative consultant for season two he went on to co-create the sci-fi series sliders and he wrote for the series odyssey 5 carnival and the 2007 film i am legend and of course he is the son of singer composer and actor mel torme the episode was directed by cliff bowl who we've talked about previously on the show bowl also directed conspiracy a torme penned episode of tng's first season that introduced his namesake species the bolians to star trek the start date for this episode is 42625.4, and your assignment, Allison, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Royale. Oh, my God. Wait, does me saying, oh, my God, count? No, but if you say uh, it, it was a dark and stormy night, that will count. Yeah, okay. Um, there's a revolving door in the middle of nowhere on a creepy planet. Uh, the crew gets stuck inside and have to use their smarts to get out. All right. That that's I like that. That's kind of like a pitch. Kind of. I, I feel like it underplays the level of gambling that happens <laughs> there's, there's in the episode. There's a lot of gambling in the episode. <laughs> no, I, I like that though. So, a black, you know, void and inside a, a a rotating door, and what's inside? Yeah. Here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. This episode was first pitched by Tor to the producers of the show. It was one of two scripts that 
actually got him his job with Trek. Torme acknowledged that the piece wasn't exactly very quote-unquote Star Trek, but he intended to be comedic and satirical of pulp and genre fiction. His final draft was originally titled The Blue Moon Hotel, and I couldn't find any source for this, but I'm guessing that that is an homage to the Stephen Crane short story, The Blue Hotel, which also features gambling and a cowboy and mysterious foreigners, but isn't funny. The episode that was shot is reportedly very different from Torme's original draft, uh, which is what prompted him to request the use of the pseudonym Keith Mills. Showrunner Maurice Hurley didn't like the surrealism in the initial draft, and he felt that the story was too derivative of the TOS episode, A Piece of the Action. Which, yeah, I can kind of see. kind of see that. Yeah. yeah, a little bit, maybe. <laughs> but they were using TOS ideas and like actual rejected mm-hmm. TOS scripts and Phase 2 scripts all, all the time in early TNG. Mm-hmm. So maybe Hurley just didn't like Torme. Hurley and Torme often clashed over story points while writing. Uh, Torme reportedly had a different relationship to the production than most writers. He was a friend of Gene Roddenberry, and his status meant that he didn't have to participate in other writers' room activities like breaking stories or rewriting scripts. He was just contracted to deliver three scripts a season, but he became frustrated with the, in his words, timid and safe material of the show, and he left his staff position after the production of this episode, contributing only one more script to the show, the season two episode Manhunt. And his original script, uh, as mentioned, contained much more comedy and much more surreal elements in the action. It also featured a recreation of the last surviving astronaut, uh, the dead guy that we see. He was actually alive in this simulation, living yeah. uh, during the, the, the events of the episode. And at the end of the episode, an away team crew member, um, a woman who, who from the Enterprise who dies during the episode, would have been recreated in the Royale to keep him company. Uh, it's somewhat reminiscent of the end of the cage, where a fantasy version of Captain Pike is created for Vina. Right. Which is strange. That would have been a little weird. It would have been different. And uh, yeah, somebody dying at the very beginning would uh, put a damper on the comedy for sure. But, <laughs> but it's Star Trek. Somebody's going to die. Um, also, uh, I've seen this a hundred times, but I never thought about this until this last watch. But an astronaut being whisked away from our solar system by unknowable aliens and living out his life in a simulated environment of well-appointed rooms and then dying in bed. That's the end of 2001. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's what happens to Dave Bowman <laughs> well, until he, yeah, that's he becomes weird. the star child. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's it's almost like that's an influential film or something. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> I also, it was kind of like Caretaker, I thought, too, the pilot of Voyager. Like Voyager is whisked to the other side of the galaxy by this mm-hmm. alien. Turns out that, you know, we didn't have what he needed. And so he's sorry that he inconvenienced us and he's going to let us live in a country time lemonade commercial for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Which, is, yeah. of course, is not good enough for the Voyager. They're going to no. go home. No, because that kind of stuff is, it's not good. You want fresh squeezed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Too much banjo music for me. We yeah. got to get out of here. <laughs> uh, a discussion of Fermat's last theorem forms a sort of frame for this episode. The algebraic <laughs> problem, which I won't pretend to understand, uh, was proposed by Pierre de Fermat in 1637, and it resisted all solutions. Captain Picard implies that Fermat's theorem remained unsolved in the 24th century, but little could the writers of Trek know that Oxford University professor Andrew Wiles would indeed publish a solution to the problem in 1995. The third season DS9 episode Facets would return to Fermat's last theorem when it aired in that
that year, and it features Jadzia Dax claiming that her previous host, Tobin, had found one of the more elegant solutions to Fermat's theorem in the years after Wiles' proof. So TNG bet hard on that never being solved, and they kind of lost, but they got it back on DS9. It's it's what's funny is that like the this episode occurred just not that long before they actually found a proof for that theorem, which is kind of funny because no, yeah. it was around for a while. Yeah, and then it was like as soon as as soon as it was put on film and TNG, they were like, oh wait, no, we've got it. Yeah, maybe the Andrew Wiles is just sitting around watching Star Trek and he's like, well, you know, I'm going to take another crack at that thing. Yeah, challenge accepted. Gonna prove a card wrong. If there was an internet, it would have been solved um, immediately. And I don't just mean because of the sort of cloud computing aspect of the internet, but we would have, they wouldn't have never written that because Andrew Wiles would have had a blog and would have been like, Mm -hmm. my solution, he'd be working on it and you'd be able to Google it and go, well, this guy seems like he's pretty close. But I think back then it was just, I'm sure he worked on it for a long time, but who would know about it? Yeah, right. The scene where Data fixes the craps die in order to win at gambling found its way into another Roddenberry production uh, in the Quester Tapes, the TV film which is meant to launch a new series. The titular android Questor performs a similar feat to that. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I um I used to do that all the time um, when I was younger. Uh, I was role-playing, and, uh, you know, you get some bad rolls in your die, and then I'm like, give me that. I sort of do that. I can kind of squeeze yeah. it and then, all right, he's got the touch. Let's do this. Right. Never worked. <laughs> the novel Hotel Royale begins with the line, it was a dark and stormy night, which was originally the first line of the 1830 novel Paul Clifford by Edward Bulwer-Lytton and has become synonymous with bad or purple prose, so much so that it has launched the Bulwer-Lytton Fiction Contest sponsored by the San Jose State University English Department. The contest started in 1982 and has produced six book collections of its entries. 2019's grand prize winner was Maxwell Archer, and his entry reads, Space Fleet Commander Brad Brad sat in silence, surrounded by a slowly dissipating cloud of smoke, maintaining the same forlorn frown that had been fixed upon his face since he'd accidentally destroyed the phenomenon known as time 13 inches ago. (laughs) cute so there you go (laughs) that's cute I think the grand prize is like a hundred bucks let's talk about the guest stars in this episode and you can't have a novel without characters Sam Anderson appears in the episode as the assistant manager Anderson has worked in TV and film for over 40 years and he's definitely one of like those guys you know actors who appear in a lot of stuff and you see him you say hey it's that guy it's that guy (laughs) Anderson had had several recurring roles in 90s TV shows including Growing Pains Perfect Strangers and L.A. Law and he also recurred as the villainous Holland Manners of Wolfram and Hart on Angel and played survivor Bernard Nadler on ABC's Lost. Jill Jacobson appears in the episode as Vanessa. She would go on to play Shalon Arroya in the season four DS9 episode Broken Link. She is a film and TV actress probably best known for her role as Aaron Jones on the 80s primetime soap Falcon Crest. Leo Garcia appears as the bellboy. Garcia also had a recurring role on the NBC daytime soap Santa Barbara and appeared in the 1994 film Clear and Present Danger. Noble Willingham appears as Texas. Willingham, who died in 2004, appeared in over 30 feature films in his career in addition to his many TV appearances. He's best known for the role of retired Ranger C.D. Parker on the long-running series Walker, Texas Ranger. He also ran an unsuccessful bid for Congress in his native Texas's first congressional district in the year 2000. And Gregory Beecroft appears as Mickey D. Beecroft had a long-running stint on the daytime soap Guiding Light 
in the 80s. He was also a cast member of General Hospital and As the World Turns. Uh, let's talk about the episode itself. What I got out of reading uh, the, the whole thing with uh, Tracy Torme and the history of it, uh, and I want to say that I'm not like a Tracy Torme stan. I mean, it sounds like he was just not a fan of being rewritten. And I'm not a Maurice Hurley stan either, but I can see getting pretty frustrated with a writer that's like too cool for school. But this script and all of Torme's scripts seem to be designed to push the boundaries of the setting of the show. Um, his episode Contagion was supposed to rock Starfleet to its core because there was actually evil admirals plotting in Starfleet. But that got changed by Hurley to Neckbugs. And this episode is supposed to expose or introduce surreal elements and sort of do a metafictional examination of Pulp Fiction or genre TV. Mm -hmm. And the higher ups are like, no, no, we just want some goofy casino hijinks and then we're going to do another episode next week. And when it comes to something that I got a lot about reading the reactions of um, the writers and the director on this episode is they all sort of emphasize that idea that, well, we got to do another one of these. Like, it's fun to like really dig into things and really like, ooh, what if we were all trapped in a different show this week? Uh, but they're like, yeah, but we got to build a set and we got to have costumes and we got other people coming in. You know, we just have to kind of it was a cute script, but we've got to kind of move on, which is somebody who, who produces a daily show. I'm, I'm sure you understand. Yeah. Um, and those these like I'm totally fascinated by the behind the scenes production kind of stuff, yeah. that, especially of the original series and of Next Generation, where a lot of times, you know, they were holding the production together with like glue and tape, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, because they, they were working on a limited budget and limited logistics, whereas nowadays it's. I won't. I don't want to trivialize the work that any of them do. Oh, no, but no. if you if you can't make a set, you green screen it and yeah. you you do the set on computer. Like there, there's it's a it's a diff. It's like a whole different concept of production. Yeah. And I love all the. I love the stuff that they pulled out of nowhere. That's clearly done on a a small budget limited cast like I love a bottle episode because they they clearly are just trying to trying to save some money and some time and and keep content on the screen because they've got a they've got a deadline to hit I love that I love that we don't like back then they were still shooting the show when they were airing the show oh yeah you know right uh, that that to me is just fantastic and wonderful and I w and I almost wish they would do that again although I think probably any TV producer nowadays would be like are you nuts um, yeah. because now you know they deliver these whole packages yeah like multicam shows uh, like sitcoms and stuff probably still do that but uh, these these mm -hmm. shows that are 13 episodes or 16 episodes they almost shoot it like a long movie then just box yeah. it up and it all goes to post. And then we just go from there. Uh, one of my favorite yeah. stories about the old uh, original series production is that the fact that they had to shoo the pigeons away uh, before shooting <laughs> because there was just birds hanging out in the studios for some reason. And so they would try to feed them like early in the day to get them oh out God. of the way. And then, then they would have to stop takes. And there was a, a PA had to run and just shoo all the, all the birds away. Um, and speaking of, uh, you know, budgetary concerns, there were obviously some budgetary problems uh, in developing this episode. But uh, director Cliff Bull said that they they knocked out a pretty convincing Vegas style set in a really short amount of time. And he should know because he directed 13 episodes of the 1979 series Vegas. So, you know, it's yeah. just a job for a lot of the crew. And, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. I think that this episode uh, is really funny. And I also think it's funny, funny because... I think Star Trek gets kind of close to biting the hand that feeds it in this episode. 
what I what I'm not sure what you mean. Well, what I mean Can you is clarify what you mean. Um, for most modern TV series, I think that they take themselves very seriously. You know, we're doing very important work here. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. mentioned before that Discovery is, um, you know, the action is very fraught, and there's very little room there's very, there's very little cracks that you can sort of fill in with comedy um mm-hmm. every episode's life and death and high drama and i think in earlier eras like syndicated shows in the 80s it was more like okay what planet are we on this week um let's go let's <laughs> yeah. film it and that's fine but it seems like in crafting this shallow world of the royale which we're supposed to kind of deride to me it looks a lot like early tng in the 80s like the kind of wonky dialogue with the weird characterization that you see mm-hmm. in early tng aren't too different than the pulpy exchanges between the bellhop and the desk clerk or the outsized, you know, Texas, the gambler, uh, maybe intentionally yeah. Torme was hitting a little close to home. Right. <laughs> I see what you mean. Yeah. And, you know, again, like I said, I mean, that's fine. I think that, um, you know, it makes, it makes the show uh, really entertaining, but it's like when they, <laughs> I, I love when uh, Riker is, you know, trying to trying to reach the ship or he's talking to Worf and they're very concerned about getting out of this like trap that they're in. And then we sort of pull back and, hey, you don't want to mess with Mickey D. Don't tell me what to do. Uh, she's my girl. And these little vignettes happen sort of for the benefit of the people that are there. And then they're like, yeah, what was that? <laughs> What's going on here? I just I just think it's wonderful the way that, um, you know, they this is the kind of plot. This kind of plot reminded me a little bit actually a lot of Doctor Who, um, mm. which is a is a series that I've always admired a lot because they set up this framework, the the concept of the Doctor and the TARDIS, that literally they can go anywhere in time and space. So you can write whatever story you want. Yeah. And it will absolutely make sense because they have a TARDIS. Right, right. So that's great science fiction because you can literally make up stuff out of nowhere and it can be completely incongruous, but it still works. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this episode is a little bit like that. They're, they're writing a schlocky noir story, you know, straight out of like the mystery novels from like the 20s. And... Um, having a fun time with it. They know they're having a fun time with it because they know like they 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 hold they literally hold up the novel at the end of the episode. Right. I know what is what are the people like I want to see like a follow-up episode where the assistant manager like starts flipping through the novel and he's like, "Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god." Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that we haven't talked about yet is the fact that there's a there's a good sci-fi story wrapped up in there, which is kind of a it's a first contact story gone wrong. So oh, this yeah. the 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 alien beings on this planet were trying to be like, hey, come over to our house, except that our house is super toxic and you're all going to die, all <laughs> and we're really really sorry. Yeah. And so there the the mystery the sci the sci-fi is basically it's a like a reverse first contact thing, and they're trying to unpick this mystery at the same time this like ridiculous story is going on around them and I, I think that's that's a wonderful framework that Star Trek doesn't use enough of because they're going all over the galaxy who knows what they'll encounter most of the time in modern day you you the stuff that they encounter is going to be more or less what we've already seen over the last 53 years right. um but the Royale is a good example of where they were like, we don't know what we're going to run into. Here is this weird planet with like a hotel on it. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> but that, but it make, I mean, it, it it makes logical sense because you don't know, you don't know what's out there. Yeah, that is it. That's true. That that's a really great like '60s 
uh, pulp sci-fi sort of setup, you know, like a yeah. spaceman in a silver spacesuit with a bubble on his head coming through a revolving yeah. door. And there's, you know, dames and, and gangsters and stuff like that. Um, that's I can see that as a cover of like a pulp novel. Yeah. The way that Riker realizes that they have to assume a role in the story to move freely in it is mm-hmm. is really neat, I think. And I think that it really this before Star Trek or really a lot of TV was doing this is sort of like a meta fictional commentary on like the constructions of stories. And I think that's really cool. My my question, my practical question is though, if the aliens designed this fiction as a playground, did they really understand it? I mean, we know from the episode that they, they, they couldn't countenance the idea that a guy would get sick of a fake casino after a week. And so he's just like, Oh my God, please kill me. He probably died happy in that bed, but, (laughs) but why would they design uh, an exit condition. Do you know what I mean? Like, is that just a bug or is it a feature? Because, uh, you know, once Riker figures out, well, of, the investors, you know, leave. So, of course, now we can leave. <laughs> but what if the astronaut yeah. had figured that out? Then now he's just stuck outside of a hotel for the rest of his life. They just find a skeleton outside the revolving door. Huh. That's a really interesting uh that's a really interesting question that's going to haunt me <laughs> well, for, for my life now, because like, I just kind of accepted it. Yeah. I, you know, I'm just kind of cool with it. It's fine. Like, I just accept that, you know, the aliens, they literally don't understand literature. They literally, and the, the, th- the things that, that are in that book, they, they can clearly understand the language. I don't know why exactly, but you know, but the, the things in that book, it's a little bit like in galaxy quest when they're like, Oh, it's the yeah, historical yeah, documents. Yeah. Oh. Um, and so they, they, are trying and they comp- they they are just unable at all to synthesize the idea that this is like hor- horrible for him. Yeah. Um, um but the idea of that exit condition is really fascinating and do are the alien beings aware that he's dead? Well yeah, it seems there's there you get a lot of this in early TNG is that the these godlike aliens do something and they leave and then we kind of come upon the ruins of it like the last outpost or um skin of evil or this episode yeah like where are the aliens like check up on it like like if the guy's been dead for 200 years like you've never come back and went ooh, we're gonna take this gerbil back to the pet store yeah so i don't know actually i assumed what's funny is i assumed that the aliens were there on the planet and they just like made him like a terrarium (laughs) (laughs) yeah right (laughs) Yeah, that's what like I mean, I I don't know if they actually specify that in the episode. I'd have to go back and watch it again, and again. But uh, yeah. um, I assume that the aliens were actually there, just sort of watching it, like, and and like they had a lizard who just hadn't moved in a while, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Or maybe the exit condition was kind of the um, qualification for like, if you can get out of here, then we'll talk to you. But they didn't plan yeah. on human lifespan, so this guy's dead. And then Riker and, and the away team figure it out, leave. And it, two seconds after they dematerialize, a bunch of aliens show up like, hey, good job. Hey, there's nobody here. Yeah. Anyway, and, and actually, now that you say that, um, the astronaut, Colonel Ritchie, yeah. uh, would, would never have been able to hit that exit condition because he is not a they. That's true. Um, so it might be a moot point. I suppose... I th- in that case, then, does it just go on and on for him? Because if he'd been there for his entire life and when the away team walks in, it's just you know, presumably a dark and stormy night, the beginning of the novel. Was it just, 
is he Phil Connors? Was it just Groundhog Day for him? Like by the time he died, yeah, I was wondering that too. He'd done everything. He'd murdered everybody in the casino. He'd burned the place down. And it just comes back the next day. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's the tie-in fiction but, I want to see. <laughs> but you know, I'm okay with that being vague. Like that to yeah, me yeah. is is good science fiction. I'm glad that they didn't answer that. Um, contrast that to. Um, no, I'm not going to bash anybody else. Oh, but oh, okay. the, it, you know, uh, I like it. It spurs conversation, for example. Um, and you and I could probably sit here and retcon exactly what had happened and fill in all those gaps, but we don't really need to. What happened happened, and they moved on, and I'm okay with that. Sure. And, uh, you know, Tracy Torme would hate what we came up with anyway. Probably. <laughs> That's why you and I are not um, TNG writers. Yeah, or, or showrunners, yeah. <laughs> Um, this episode is a really neat instance of something that I think uh, that Trek would try to do and do a lot across its various series. And I think that that's exploring narrative in a metafictional sense, uh, or at least the use of metafictional elements to spice up the story. And just for listeners who aren't familiar with the concept of metafiction, it's using your story to comment on stories or the artificiality of fiction, um, often characters being aware of their role in a narrative. Uh, and that sort of thing. And if, obviously, the holodeck is the perfect tool for that practice. Almost every time the holodeck is pulled out, it's for for something like that. But I feel like the franchise had been doing that since early TOS. Um, you know, if you think about something like the Spectre of the Gun, I think this episode is very similar to the Spectre of the Gun. You've got your away team. They're stuck in a historical environment. They kind of have an idea how things are supposed to go. But whenever they try to break from something... In Spectre of the Gun, it's not get killed by Wyatt Earp. Uh, in this, it's just, hey, can we leave? It's like, no, you can't leave. Can we talk to the manager? He's not here. Um, they can't escape this narrative until they find a way to kind of play through the narrative and sort of find their own solution to it. Um, yeah, I think, just think that that's a really interesting parallel. Yeah. And also, you brought up Kodos the Executioner before. And right. I was wondering, like, I feel like Conscience of the King is on its surface, sort of like a metatextual thing because the whole episode has kind of the structure of um, a Shakespeare play or at least a collection of Shakespeare scenes and it features, of course, a Shakespeare troupe in it. And so if you put Kirk in a situation where he's trying to figure out if this old guy you know, is or is not responsible for a murder or many murders, is it only metafictional if he, <laughs> if Kirk says wow, I really feel like Hamlet here. Like, like, do you have to right. call attention to it? Uh, or does it just uh, work on its own? Yeah, I don't know. I I really don't know. That's a hard one. Why is it always Shakespeare, by the way? I, I hoped that uh, CBS Trek would turn this around. That, like, you know, the benefits of a classical education, if you are a white male writer writing in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, Shakespeare is the height of culture for, for you, right? So, of course, everyone right. in Star Trek in the 24th century loves Shakespeare. And it hasn't changed a ton, but we do have people listening to rap music and talking about Prince and stuff like that. It's not all yeah. like classical music now. So hopefully we'll we'll get there uh, someday. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe because they didn't have the internet when they were writing. Um, they <laughs> yeah, just, just felt right. like they didn't have access to a lot of Google like, any um, other public domain. Playwright. Yeah. <laughs> But there's, there was all sorts of stuff available. They just didn't take advantage of it. Yeah. Speaking of which, I love the fact that the Enterprise computer always has everything in it. Like, I know yeah. that they could probably, like, 
you know, tap out to some satellite that's got like, a bit deeper database, but they've got the Hotel Royale novel in their computer or, yeah. or in Voyager um, in 1159 when Janeway's like, oh, my ancestor did this stuff. And then they look up in newspaper clippings in Voyager's computer that they have for some reason. They're like, right. well, I don't think she did that. Yeah, all the way in the Delta Quadrant. Right. Yeah. yeah, they've got really great, they've got 5G. <laughs> really, really good Wi-Fi out there. Yeah. <laughs> the astronauts in the episode, of course, they are red-blooded American astronauts from NASA. Uh, and I have to imagine in the future, like in a more recent episode or on CBS Trek, they might have come from a different country. Or right. um, just, yeah, like you said, <laughs> just Google something. There's other space programs. <laughs> yeah, make up a global space force gas or whatever global administration you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, but listen i here's one thing I, would, I was hoping that it would kind of come up um so this gave me a like a little cool stab of nostalgia right at the beginning of the episode because they they hold up the the space debris right right, right. with the with the u.s flag and the nasa logo it's the old nasa logo it's the worm, the worm which they've one. just made this huge like deal because of course they haven't been using that for many back. many years yeah. and then um i want to say one of the recent rockets or shuttles or something they put the they put the old worm logo back on yeah. so it's a little piece of nostalgia they bet on that and they got that one right <laughs> format one yeah. star trek one right. yeah. <laughs> yeah i love the fact that uh data well first of all he tells data to summarize the book and data goes okay bzz, reads the whole book um yeah i wish i could uh when i saw that as a kid i wished I, I could do that but then captain picard you know knowing that his away team is now somehow embroiled in the pages of a book is like well i gotta read this book and of course, he starts off and he's like, it's a dark and stormy night. Oh, this this isn't good. This We're not starting off here very well. Uh, and then later on, you hear him. I think he's like listening to it. And then he's listening to uh, Riker keeps his comm open. And so they're just listening to the action of the hotel. He lo- He's a spaceman from the future. <laughs> like he is so bored with this. And Troy's right. listening too. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And she like never comes back. And it's just like right. the whole, there's, there isn't really a B plot. It's just us reacting to these 24th century characters going, oh God, this is terrible. Yeah, I did find that kind of interesting because there, like nothing happens on the Enterprise, <laughs> yeah. but it is there to serve as a form of, uh, it's a form of narrator, isn't it? Because Troy is able to kind of say, oh, Riker's feeling blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it's like, it's a way from them to cut away from the action and advance the plot whilst also like adding in. Uh, like a basically a narrator voice. I thought it was really like uh, the first time I watched it, it was like, why are they doing this? Like, why are they bothered? They could have saved <laughs> the salaries of Patrick right, Stewart. Just let them off. The week. Marina yeah, Sardis. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, and yet actually when I watched it again, it was like, Oh, this is actually a really clever um, narrative thing. Um, trick to use because um, it allows them to, to do that and advance the plot when, when really, because the plot of the of the novel doesn't appear to actually be that deep. No, no, a bellboy it's gets really, killed. It's really just there's a girl. <laughs> Something and the horrible likes probably her. happens to Vanessa, and yeah, yeah. yeah. The plot of that's pretty shallow. Yeah. So they do that thing that they do in a lot of early TNG, which I think of as just like we paid for Riker, we're going to use him, like justifying the fact that he leads the away missions and not Kirk, uh, where he'll just. Right dictate what's going on so we get a lot of low angle shots of picard going what are you seeing down there and they're like uh you wouldn't believe it you know so we have a little bit of that and then in the first part of the episode you've got geordie and wesley working on the 
the communications and Picard will just stop yep. by and go, all right, nerds, what do you got? Like, let me know how we're working <laughs> right. on that. I was I was thrilled to see Wesley there. Yeah. Getting a little screen time for Will sure. Wheaton. Yeah. Just basically going, we can't we can't get in touch with them, Captain. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty much what Still he was know. doing. Still no. Yeah. was in it too. Yes. For like a second. For a s- like they got every they got everybody on set. <laughs> for a second. I I can't remember. Um there was Maybe it's a different episode. I just watched this episode and I can't remember. But there is a scene where um, Pulaski is, they're trying to get these um, the away, the away team out of wherever they are. And she says, we could pop the bubble or whatever with the phasers and they would be frozen and I might be able to revive them. Is that ep- this episode? Did I just? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it is? Okay. That's, yeah, because they're, they're trying to figure out how to get out. Right. And they, they're like, so listen, we can do this and we can get you out. We'll flash um, freeze them and then heat them up in the yeah. microwave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was around the same time that Mickey D arrives and then they watch him leave. And Riker's like, I've got an idea. Yeah. Don't do that. Just wait on that. And then we're going to try <laughs> yeah. this other thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I really like Pulaski and nobody has yet picked an episode. That's a real, um, uh, Pulaski, uh, banger that I've been able to talk about how I think she got a, she got a bad rap. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You said banger and I'm like, she banged R- Riker's dad. Oh, <laughs> that's that- well, yeah, right. Yeah. Sorry. There's a sticker. Somebody picked that episode. You- What's the, what, what yeah. is it? <laughs> I can't remember the episode. It, well, it's the one with Riker's dad, isn't it? Okay. But there's um. Did, have you ever heard of the podcast Women at Warp? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So they they have these stickers. And years ago, um, they had these stickers that that say "Never forget Pulaski Bang Riker's dad." <laughs> and it's just it's like a really funny like cartoon on it. And I have I have one somewhere. It's one of my prized possessions because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> um, so that that happened in one episode. You should like you should push that on your next guest and be like, I know we said we were going to let you choose, but we're not. Guess what? <laughs> and that's the one where they do the American Gladiators fight, too, right? Yeah. 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 yeah okay. The uh, Anbo Jitsu. Yeah. Right. I'll just hand somebody yeah. a, a Puji yeah. stick and be like, let's do this thing. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to say about this episode as we uh, wind down here? Something that was incongruous, but I absolutely loved. So there was a tonal shift right at the end, like from from the time that Riker goes, "I've got it." Um, they and they go over and they start playing craps. They just they just have fun for the whole rest of the episode. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, you know, with Data, you know, weighting the dice, and then he's like, "Baby needs a new pair of shoes." I'm like, "Where did he even get that?" Yeah, from? I know. <laughs> like <laughs> he read the book. <laughs> like all of a sudden he's like he goes from I'm going to be Data right now, and and then all of a sudden he's like high roller and all on top of it, and Riker's there buying drinks for everyone yeah. and just loving every second of it. And Worf is there looking confused like he always does when whenever anybody has fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was just like that whole like that downward slide from the point where you know that they've come up with the solution, they just have to execute it. Yeah. Um, that that whole part of the episode was just. Um, just so enjoyable it goes, to watch. It goes pretty smooth, yeah, and it's really, really fun. It, I just feel like they're at that point in the writing of the episode, they must have been like, "All right, it's Act Five. We got eight minutes. Let's just let's just get rid of this here. Let's just have some fun." Yeah, and it just feels good. By the time you leave that episode, by the time you exit out of it, you're like, "Yeah, I love Star Trek." Can we come back to this, the Hotel Royale? Yeah, <laughs> can we do it again? What if there was a yeah? It's Planet Holodeck. You just it only plays one program, but you go there, and right. as long as you make a bunch of money, you can get out. I, I feel like that's been done. Like I feel like that's an actual thing somewhere. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to think on that because um, that's just a great idea. Start selling tickets. <laughs> yeah, right. Especially if it's the especially if it's the thing where the um, 
where the aliens actually aren't there and it's just sort of on autopilot. It's like it's like the 24th century version of an escape room. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Have you ever done an escape room? <laughs> no. And I've done the I've done like the games, like the apps. That's yeah, fun. Yeah, um, yeah. Escape room, like an actual physical one, sounds like the worst thing I can imagine. I, I feel the same way, but now that I think about it, that's it's just an early holodeck. So <laughs> here's to yeah. hating the holodeck in the future, I guess. Yeah. Well, now that we're at the end of the episode, uh, let's talk. My space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Eh. <laughs> I'm gonna spoiler from uh, spoiler from Picard, sure. but my favorite captain is gonna be Captain Riker. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which no, to be fair, before 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 that, I would have been Captain Picard, hands down. Sure, but now it's uh, it's Captain Riker. Um, for now, it's Captain Riker because look at him for for his his rakish mean or for any particular qualities. Uh, it's <laughs> so uh, yeah. I I talk about this at length on at every opportunity I possibly can. Um, no, everything about Riker is absolutely perfect. He's um. <laughs> Because he's good looking and he's smooth, but he's actually incredibly competent. Yeah. Um, I actually think he makes a really, really good first officer um, to Picard's captain. I think the the pair of them as captain and first officer is great. I completely 100% believe that he stayed as a first officer when he could have been promoted because he probably, like, in his job, he probably makes a better first officer than a captain. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's... Um, I loved. I just loved seeing him at you know in in the the captain's chair on the the bridge of the what is it the Zhenghe. Yeah, it's also the best job in Starfleet, or it's the best ship in Starfleet. And if you're going to get your own ship, I, whether yeah. it's the Titan or whatever they're offering him, you're going to go from yeah. like being in the passenger seat of a Ferrari to like being you know driving a Toyota Tercel or something like that, and then you have to work your way yeah. up all over again. So yeah, I mean, it's he's on the Enterprise, you know, hang out for a few years. Yeah. Although I pity his first officer, though, because nobody's going to be good enough. He's always going to be like, well, you should probably be, you should do this. Like when yeah, I was well, on the when Enterprise, I, was first I did officer, this. I was way better yeah. than you. <laughs> yeah. We never did it like that. But OK, that's fine. That's fine. Actually, I, I honestly don't think he would do, actually, because he always struck me. They they wrote him uh, as a as a leader, as a uh, he he's like a C-suite manager. He's not a CEO, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, sure. um, um, he's he's actually a really competent leader and I loved I, I always loved the scenes when they'd have him and Counselor Troy doing like staff reviews. Like yeah. that's such a normal thing for them to be doing. And I got the I, I always got the feeling they always wrote him in a way that seemed like he would be very sympathetic and empathetic towards his staff and actually looked after them. So yeah, I don't think you I really except for the bit he was one of the ones that called Barkley broccoli all the time broccoli. well that's what they said yeah, yeah but. <laughs> but then that that episode was a little incongruous for that because I really don't believe any of them would have called him broccoli but anyway I'm getting off topic I'm sorry it's <laughs> okay um <laughs> yeah I love that part in tapestry where in the alternate reality where Picard is a lowly like menial and he's like do you really want this job? Maybe there's something that we can find for you that's better I, I don't think your command uh material but you know keep doing what you're yeah. doing well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Uh, ooh, ooh, I, ooh. Can I can I do whatever Wesley Crusher did when he was an ensign? Helm, helmsman. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's like where the action is. But you don't like you can make all the faces you want because you're facing away from everything that's happening. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> But you get to be like right up there and you get to see all the all the action that's going on on the screen. But you can, you know, 
it's you're like in it, but you're away from you're it. You're kind of chief quip officer too, you know, from Sulu yeah. to Jordy to Paris. You're the guy that gets oh, to go. Detmer. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. the person that gets to go. I don't want one of those, or you know, whatever it yeah. is when you see something on <laughs> right. the screen. Yeah. All right. Well, per- perfect. Helmsen. Awesome. Ensign Pitt, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, the best place to go is dailystartreknews.com. Uh, it's got links to all of the various social media profiles on there for the podcast Daily Star Trek News. I am at Ad Astra 1930 on all of the socials as well. So if you want to follow me, you can do that. Although I think it's all, it's a big web. Like if you go to dailystartreknews.com and you click through to Twitter, you can find, I have my other handle there. You'll find me. Sure. Also allisonpitt.com. So oh, right, right. <laughs> that's got links back. It's, it's, a, I've got my own little worldwide web. So <laughs> Wow. And uh, it's hard to, it's hard to miss me. And Daily Star Trek News is available on all major listening platforms. Yes, it is. All right. Well, people check that out. And thanks again for joining me. And YouTube. And we're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You go f*** yourself.